off to Leonard. Defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? Oh! Game! Series! Remember that guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I'm James, and I'm here to help exercise some Philadelphia Toronto demons uh, with my co-host here. The demons have been exercised. I actually giggled a little bit when you did that, whereas I would normally be in tears, but I no longer <laughs> am. They have been exercised. You just heard a laugh. The laugh is that of a special guest that we have for you today. It's not Kawhi Leonard. It's the man with the second best laugh. Please introduce yourself. Uh, that's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. Welcome, Xavier. I will uh, posit the the second best laugh in sports actually is the incredibly fake laugh that A Rod does anytime he's on like a financial television show. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but he's not a human being. He's a little robot puppet boy who is trying very, very hard to be real. And uh, if if he makes the Hall of Fame, he'll finally get that wish to come true. So. A-Rod is truly a showman, and the one thing that I always remember about him is his first interview that he did with the Yankees, he adopted just the very slightest, like you could barely pick up on it. He had a very slight Hispanic accent doing his first interview in New York. And it was like, he's like, hey, you know, I'm in New York, the Bronx, oh, you know, we got all the people here. He, He was playing to his crowd. He's a person that likes to play to the crowd. I enjoy him, personally. I don't find his little puppet persona disagreeable. I find him interesting. He just always seems like he is pretending to be Alex Rodriguez. But enough about that. Enough about Alex Rodriguez. He's in the past. We want to know about the present. Which one of you guys wants to lead us off for making memories? I mean, I'll just jump right into it. We're recording on Thursday evening, April 21st. And last night, April 20th, Joel Embiid with, to my memory, the not quite, it's not, it wasn't quite a buzzer beater, but first game-winning shot with under like three seconds to go in a game that I can remember for a Sixer in a playoff game. To do it in that environment where the last time that he played a playoff game there was, of course, the intro that James did. Quadruple I, doink. The quadruple doink, which came just months after we had the double doink to beat the Bears in a playoff game the Eagles did, so... I was like, all right, well, the doinks came back twofold, but we didn't need any doinks last night. We, we just got nothing but the bottom of the net on that sweet three ball from Embiid. I loved seeing the breakdown of Doc Rivers drawing up the play. ESPN did a real nice thing where they, they overlaid Doc speaking with an X's and O's breakdown of those actions occurring. And what a delight that we live in the time in basketball in which 7-2 centers are taking catch-and-shoot threes with under a second on the shot clock to win games. There, there, was, there was some conversation on first take. I think it was Chris Russo this, was talking about Bob Cousy. Yeah, the and, Bob Cousy ongoing and, dialogue since the NBA 75 where players were listed. Right, and and J.J. Redick said, you know, if you dropped Kyrie Irving back in Bob Cousy's time, they think he's a wizard. If you dropped Joel Embiid back in Bob Cousy's time, basketball would no longer exist. They would have said, he's too good at this. This sport has been solved. We're no longer going to play this game because this one person is too dominant and too actualized and too unstoppable at this game. Let's let's get real first. Like Bill Russell is an incredible champion. Joel Embiid would give Bill Russell the business. Jo- Joel Embiid would pummel Bill Russell. Bill Russell, <laughs> he had eleven rings. Is is that about right? He would have one ring. Eleven rings in thirteen seasons, including eight consecutive ones. 
Yeah, he, him against Joel Embiid. I mean, because you think Bill Russell was only like six eight or six nine, I think too. Joel Embiid would have been illegal. They would have they would have banned people seven foot or taller from playing basketball because it is clearly too inherent of an advantage if this giant person is more skilled than every single person that is playing this game. It's unreal. And for him to do it there, and the Toronto fans, I don't know what they have against Embiid, but there was some vociferous fuck Embiid chants. And, like, you know, the, the fuck Kyrie chants, I the get. fouls. Like, we... we... <laughs> well, also, I think there was some talk that they thought that he was trying to deliberately injure the Raptors, like, that he tried to roll Scotty Barnes' ankle. And, I mean... Who would have thought that when you put little people and try to guard a big person with them, the little people might get hurt by the big person? Like, that's just very simple physics. <laughs> we don't need any formulas. We don't need any PER. We don't need any VORP. We don't need wind shares. We just see big person, and we see little person, and we know that big person beats little person at the game that has the tall hoop to put the ball in. It's a very simple thing. <laughs> it's very simple when you really break it down. But that's Joel Embiid permanently making memories for me 3-0 up on the raptors hopefully by the time you're all listening to this the sixers will have closed it out on saturday if not then hopefully they close it out on the night that you're listening to this but i do think they're going to take care of business saturday i think that was oh, but don't but drive. don't you want them to win at home that that's the beauty of a gentleman's sweep a gentleman's sweep not only gives the losing team like something to hang their hat on it gives you uh if you are the home team admittedly i guess they're typically the higher seed getting that uh, and you get to close it out on home court that way it would be nice but i think what would be nicer is we there's a lot of talk about the injuries we're causing we picked up a couple nicks and bruises here and there and beats them is bothering him a little bit there's some minor things here and there so i i would like to just Take care of business. Start resting. Looks like it'll probably be the Heat. We'll get to that later. Uh, when the time comes, we still do need to win one more game. I'm knocking on wood as we speak. But Joel Embiid, thank you for continuing to be the most incredible athlete I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> well, after such absolutely classy DS hyperbole, uh, Xavier, what do you have to, to follow that up with? That yeah, so I, I gotta, please ground us. Please ground I gotta, us. I, I got a couple of, a couple things. Real quick, I am also mad at the Yankees for intentionally walking Miguel Cabrera in the eighth inning. He needed one more hit for 3,000. Even though statistically it was the right thing to do with an open base and wanting a lefty-lefty matchup, they deserved to then give up a bloop two-run single to put the game out of reach. I know it's the right thing to do, but I was watching the game for hit number 3,000. I didn't care about a win in April. So I hope Miggy gets it soon. Ball don't lie doesn't come up as much in baseball, but in this particular case, the ball did not lie. Yes, it, it, it was ball don't lie. The ball reveals all truths. I do With first base open, though, I mean, that would have been malpractice to not walk. In. I know, that's the thing. It was the right call, but feeling-wise... It felt bad. It was the right call for Brandon Hyde to intentionally walk Shohei Otani in the game that I saw uh, him play against the Orioles last year. 100% the situation that he did it. I was also one of the many Orioles fans that booed Brandon Hyde for doing that. The fans want to see cool things happen. Managers want to win, and sometimes that means they have to try to make cool things not happen, which sucks and is one of the unfortunate flaws of baseball. But enough of that. Happy retirement to Jay Wright. Fantastic coach. I will not miss him as a Temple fan. I hope that this gives Temple a chance under McKee to 
come back a bit, and I hope that Nova takes a little bit of a step back because he did kick our ass for about 15 years straight. Also, Arsenal beat Chelsea 4-2 at Stanford Bridge yesterday, which was great because they had lost three games in a row to worse teams, so no one really expected that. So it was very nice to have that win. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about was the Savannah Bananas. The official baseball team of Remember That Guy. I think we can I love all them. land on that. They're great. I, lo- I love the Savannah Bananas, and they are a real collegiate summer league team, and they've won two of the past five Coastal Plain League titles. But they also do you know, a spring series, which is more kind of like Harlem Globetrottery, where they really kind of focus on the fun and like they they still do a lot of these things during their like league games but the spring is when they really kind of turn it on like they just had a a big walk out to harlem shake that was a full choreographed thing they do a lot of tiktok content my lovely fiance who otherwise could not care less about baseball frequently sends me tiktoks of the savannah bananas team so one of the best things is if you just go to the savannah bananas website and go to their about us page they just have a list of things that they do. Our players perform choreographed dances every game. Britney Spears, Michael Jackson, Toby Keith, you name it, they've danced to it. We are the only baseball team to play in kilts. Our players perform in over-the-top music videos like Old Town Road and Can't Stop the Peeling. Our hitter walk-ups are legendary. Bananas may be escorted to the plate by the Banana Pep Band. They may walk up as a golf batter with a caddy, or they may even introduce themselves. Their owner, Jesse Cole, wears a yellow tuxedo all of the time. They have their own Savannah Banana Beer. They have the Banana Nanas, a senior citizen dance team, and the Man Nanas, who are their dad bod cheerleading squad. The chief got me! The Banana Nanas. Their stadium, Grayson Stadium, is the first ever ad-free ballpark where they don't have any ads on, on the walls or on the scoreboard. No advertising for any outside thing if you go into a uh, Savannah Bananas game. And before... Every game, they honor the banana baby. Cue the Lion King opening music with players kneeling around, a baby being lifted in a banana costume. Do they have, like, is this the baby for this season? Is this, like, a different baby every I game? I hope it's a what different the... baby every game, but I, I need to find no, that see, out. I kind of like the idea I... of this baby has been selected to be this year's baby. This is I... just the 2022 baby. He gets a little card. He gets to be in the baseball card pack that you get. I want to take it a step further. They should treat it like the Dalai Lama, where we just get to see the baby grow up and the baby just continues to be the mascot until it becomes a wise 70-year-old mascot. And then when, unfortunately, he does move on to the next life, the next Savannah banana baby is born again has to pick <laughs> out the, the, the favorite toys of the previous banana. I think that would be a beautiful tradition to see started. The Dolly banana. But, you know, I... I talked earlier about how baseball can be non-fun when it comes to, you know, trying to make the best choices for winning based on, you know, statistics. But baseball can be really fun if you just let baseball be fun. And the Savannah Bananas prove that baseball can be fun. Just let players have personalities and do things. And then you would see more fan engagement and interaction like you see in some of the other star-driven leagues. Let them do stuff without threat of getting beamed in the head, punched, or benched by their own ancient managers who only care about the unwritten rules. Let them have fun. Kick Tony La Russa out of Major League Baseball. <laughs> I mean, there's many reasons for that, but that, but 
Yeah, I mean, is. like, just do that in general, but it would also make baseball more fun. You guys don't think managers should encourage teams to throw at their own players? They should do what Buck Showalter does. It's just, like, the second one of your players gets hit, just go out and bum-rush the pitcher. Buck Showalter's the only old guy who kind of gets it, and even he leaves Zach Britton in the bullpen during a wildcard game. <laughs> what about you, James? I'll, I'll tell you who's making memories for me, Xavier. We, we hear... I remember that guy. We're big fans of name, image, and licensing rights, aren't we? Love it. And I, I not so much, but we have definitely, from Diaz, got a lot of love for golf here, and I want to combine those two things this week. Uh, I am a big fan of a pair of athletes who have signed the first father ever. Father and son. I yes, know. Father yeah. and okay. son. Yes. <laughs> uh, who have signed the first ever name, image, and licensing deal with the definitive 19th hole of golf. That is a direct quote from the press release from Hooters. Hooters has their first ever NIL deal with Father John Daly, to be fair, noted piece of shit, and John Daly II, his son, who we don't know, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, He is a (laughs) University of Arkansas golf player right now, following in his father's footsteps as a Razorback. And as Hooters says, the partnership strengthens an enduring connection between the iconic brand and golf's ultimate personality. If, if you want to get words from John Daly II in particular, straight from the horse's mouth, to see how he feels about this deal. I've seen my father's great relationship with Hooters over the years, and I'm <laughs> proud to continue my family's association with this iconic brand. Once again, that brand is the definitive 19th hole, Hooters. That's all. Why, why stretch it out any more than it needs to be? What a beautiful little spicy wing-sized nugget there. I'll give that to John Daly II. He knows his family brand is never going to change no matter what he does. So he's just going to go into his father's brand and just enjoy that too. And I can respect that. Grow that mullet. Hop in that Marlboro cigarette. Scale back the bigotry a little bit if you want. Feel free to go that direction. Scale it back just a little bit and scale up the wings, baby. Between Buffalo Wild Wings with uh, our boy from St. Peter's and now this, we, we're about to see, I think, a Wings arm race. Buffalo Wild Wings did just sign Clay Thompson. I saw that commercial. Oh, they got Clay Thompson. Right. Ooh, okay. You know what? It, the, the Wings race is heating up from mild to spicy between Buffalo Wild Wings and Hooters. I'm interested to see how this progresses in the future. We'll keep you updated on the Wings race. But for today, we can turn to our main topic. I... Realize that we've talked about it. We love long journeyman careers. I think it's it's very easy to romanticize that, but I think it's important sometimes that we acknowledge those beautiful, bright flames that burn oh so short. I took this incredibly literally as we this week decided to discuss guys with incredibly short careers. I found just about the shortest career in professional sports that I think you can, and that belongs to a guy named Ryan Sutter. Are either of you familiar with uh, football player Ryan Sutter? I was going to say, I thought that was like a hockey defense. Yeah, I, that's Ryan Suter that you're thinking of. It, it is not him, uh, who I believe is a former Canuck, but we don't need to get into that right now. We want to talk about the football player, Ryan Sutter. Ryan Sutter is from Fort Collins, Colorado. That was once the sheep-feeding capital of the world. They were uh, just a giant center for the feeding, and then later, slaughter and butcher of lamb and lamb meat. So that was sheep capital of the world there in Fort Collins, Colorado. And that is where at Fort Collins High, he was a standout defensive back, graduating the class of 1995. Caught the eye of the University of Colorado Boulder, 
and he played for the Buffaloes for his sophomore through senior years on the field. He, in that senior year, had three interceptions to lead the team. One of those was a pick six. That was only touchdown. Did a little bit of, like, very, very light kickoff and, and punt returning duty. But uh, largely, he was a special teams tackler and a safety slash flexible defensive back. And so he declares for the draft. In 1998, he is taken in the fifth round, 133rd overall by the Baltimore Ravens. 40 picks later, we will have a center that actually goes on to win a Super Bowl with the Ravens, Matt Burke. 54 picks after uh, our friend Ryan Sutter. We've got Matt Hasselbeck. And 56 picks after him, former guy Patrick Manley. Patrick Manley. Patrick Manley, who we've discussed in the past, was taking 56 picks after Ryan Sutter. Patrick Manley, we have said, has the longest career of, I believe, at the very least, of the Chicago Bears, which is a venerated yes. franchise. Yes, yes. Lo- longest longest bear, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Ryan Sutter's career is not going to last quite as long, and it gets off on a rocky footing. He is not one of the Baltimore Ravens' many mid-to-late-round gems. He is cut after training camp, after not really seeing any preseason action. He does sign to the Carolina Panthers' practice squad. The Carolina Panthers this year suck. Part of that is start hemorrhaging players, so ahead of a November 29th matchup against your New York Jets, Xavier, they finally have to elevate Ryan Sutter from the practice squad to the team. Part of this is, again, just to have special teams tacklers. They do not even have like enough people that they're willing to risk the bodies up, but they're willing to risk Ryan Sutter's body. And so on the opening kickoff of this game, John Cassay, am I pronouncing that correctly? John Cassay? I think it's Casey. Uh, I want to say Casey. Casey. John Casey, okay. John Casey of the Carolina Panthers kicks off to Leon Johnson of the Jets. Ernest Jones brings him down at the 22. However, after that, there is a stoppage. In that play, the first ever professional play of Ryan Sutter's career, he suffers a devastating shoulder injury and is immediately taken out of the game, placed on injured reserve for the rest of the season, and then cut from the Carolina Panthers. Well, you said uh, there's the no year, sad things in this. I didn't say no sad things. I said that largely... This is a fun story. But look, if he's going to have a short NFL career, there needs to be a reason why. And, and this is why. He does not ever make it back onto a professional NFL field again. He does make it to Seahawks training camp the next year. He is again cut. In 2000, he plays a season with the Barcelona Dragons during the NFL Europe NFL thing Europe. that they were running out there. But after that, you know what? It's time to hang it up. That is the end of the sports career of Ryan Sutter. He goes back home uh, and actually moves a little bit away from home. He moves to Vail, Colorado. Once again, we've got all these like fun tangential connections to other past guys. That is where Sarah Schlepper learned her trade as a skier before then becoming one of the preeminent Mexican skiers of all time. But he is just a firefighter there. And that is the profession that he has when America becomes acquainted with Ryan Sutter again. They become reacquainted with him on the first season of a little television show called The Bachelorette. God damn it. I love this. I <laughs> love this. This is the crossover I was not expecting. I have been spending all week thinking to myself, they have no idea how much they're about to hear about the Bachelorette franchise. You know what? I just got to go call Griffin McElroy. Go listen to some Rose Buddies. That's the extent of my knowledge of the Bachelor, Bachelorette. Don't worry. Like, I'm not going to front like I know a whole lot about this franchise. Listen, I probably know the most of anybody on this I think podcast. that's completely possible. I, since about 2016, I've been in it. I, I will be honest, to know what's going on in the world, I will read recaps of it. I do not watch it, but I like to be culturally fluent, so to speak. 
Yeah. I would not know a single name from any season of any of the Bachelor programming. We only have to focus on, on Mr. Sun. Yeah. But before we get to Mr. Sun, I do want to give a little background on it since this is, you know, the beginning of this franchise. The Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise as a whole actually has one other predecessor. It's all the brainchild of a guy named Mike Fleiss. And in 2000, he did his first show kind of related to this as an attempt to start to figure out what this market was. The day after Valentine's Day, February 15th, there is a little two-hour broadcast television special called Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? This is a play on the title of the popular show at the time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It is a pageant with 50 contestants that in two hours are going to get winnowed down as if it was like a Miss America competition for the mystery multimillionaire who for the vast majority of the show is kept like behind a screen and is giving cryptic answers and responses. It's a combination between like Miss America and that blind date TV show that they had forever. At the very end, Rick Rockwell is revealed as the multimillionaire, if this is the first time you've ever heard that name. First off, that's because it's not his real name. His real name is Rick Balky. Second off, he was maybe a multimillionaire. In the press releases for the show, his net worth is $2 million. Even in the things that they were putting out as publicity for this show, they were giving him the estimated net worth that was as low as possible while still technically being a multimillionaire. It is estimated that his actual net worth was significantly lower than that. Reality um, shows are weird. I mean, there was that one that I heard of that they pretended it was like Prince Harry or something like it was either Prince Harry or Prince William. They pretended that a guy was that and these women thought that they were trying I mean, to buy to marry a British prince and he was just some regular dude that they rented the castle that. for. There's Joe Millionaire, where famously Joe was not a millionaire. And in this one, not only is Rick Rockwell slash Rick Balky not a multimillionaire likely, the women were reportedly underwhelmed by his looks when he was finally <laughs> revealed to them. But he does, on stage, marry the winner, quote-unquote, Darva Conger. As you can already imagine from the information that I have brought, which very quickly after this broadcast comes to light, the show is a disaster in many ways. Darva Conger very quickly gets that wedding annulled. She's like, nope, he is a creep. There is like a restraining order out on him from an ex at the time. Rick Rockwell slash Rick Balky, not a great guy. This is condemned by the National Organization for Women now like publicly decries it. And despite all of this, 22 million people tuned in. As far as Mike Fleiss is concerned, fucking runaway success. Like People he doesn't like crash. hear any negatives. He yeah. crash. And so Mike Fleiss decides, you know what? I need to retool this a little bit, but we're onto something here. Just a little bit later in 2002, The Bachelor is born. In the first season of The Bachelor, we've got an Alex Michelle, and he is the one Bachelor who is going to, over six weeks, winnow down. Now they've got to 25 contestants. They're like, 50 is a little high. Let's cut that in half. You know, two dozen plus one. We've probably still got your soulmate somewhere in there, right? So it's the six to seven weeks of elimination. And in the very end, Alex Michelle in that first finale, he's eliminated a lot of women. And actually, before we get to the finale, I do want to play our first round of a game. I'm going to list five jobs that contestants in this first season of The Bachelor had. One of them is not real. The other four are. I want the two of you to guess which one of these Bachelor jobs is not a real job. Number one, we have sideline reporter. Number two, Hooters waitress. Number three, we have power tool sales representative. Number four, Miami Heat dancer. And number five, neuropsychologist. I want to say it's one of the second or third one. I say sideline reporter. 
Xavier, congratulations. It is sideline reporter. All of those other four are 100% real. And the Miami Heat dancer is actually the runner-up. Trista Range makes it all the way to the final round. But he, this Alex Michelle, does choose Amanda Marsh instead. Now, he and Amanda Marsh do not end up together. In fact, as I'll go into a little bit later, very few of these couples actually end up together. It's but, all TV. Well, hold on. I've got a, there's an narrative arc here, Xavier. I promise. <laughs> I'm taking you on a journey. Trista Rain is going to come away from this because something about this season, it is, again, a rousing hit. They average 10.7 million viewers for every episode across it, including 18.2 million for the finale. This is when they're in the Monday 9 p.m. time slot that they occupy the first season. They are going to actually get a second season out during this same calendar year. In 2002, there are two different seasons of The Bachelor. The second one has a guy named Aaron Bergey proposed to Helene Eskterowicz. They also break up after a couple weeks, but the ratings are even better. 13.9 million people on average watched, including 25.9 for the finale, which still to this day is a record for Bachelor or Bachelorette season finales. It's a runaway success. And Trista Rain has not been forgotten. Trista Rain's been held on to in the stable since then because Mike Fleiss realizes, you know, it would be a really easy way to keep this going. Just flip it. And so the Bachelorette is born. Trista Rain is going to be the very first. Very often, since then, Bachelorette contestants and sometimes Bachelor contestants have been people that advanced far enough in another season to gain some notoriety but did not win at all. But he created January, his own farm system. His own farm ex- system was created. Exactly. Like, it's, again, I'm not endorsing The Bachelor of the Bachelorette in any capacity. But you, to, to some extent, you got to respect, man, they made a franchise. They made a franchise that, in 2017, averaged $87 million in revenue annually. This is a cash cow for Mike Fleiss. And so that is why he brings about The Bachelorette. In 2003, Trista Rain welcomes 25 eligible men to the villa. Our boy Ryan Sutter is one of three firefighters that are in this. We also have, if you include a commercial flight instructor as a pilot, three pilots. And you know what? Why don't we just play another round of this job game? I'm going to give you five jobs that were held by individuals in this first season of The Bachelorette. One of them is not real. My friends, here are the jobs. Number one, rodeo cowboy. Number two, gym owner. Number three, lifeguard instructor, number four, breast implant sales, and number five, importer. I'm going to say importer. I'm going to say lifeguard instructor. Xavier is two for two. It is the lifeguard instructor. Uh, Yeah, there was someone who just described themselves as an importer. That's a drug dealer if I've ever heard one. (laughs) Um, There were also like five different guys in finance. They set the archetypes for what these casts were going to look like very early on. He was not one of the people that labeled themselves as a professional athlete. There were two guys that said, one, a professional basketball player and one, a professional football player. The professional football player was named Jeff Popovich. There is no relation, but two fun nuggets. He was the cornerbacks coach for University of Texas San Antonio, from the years of 2013 to 2015. So Jeff Popovich did share a city with Greg Popovich for a little bit. He also, in 2001, played for the Barcelona Dragons, the season after Ryan Sutter played for the Barcelona Dragons. So two alumni of the Barcelona Dragons made it to this first season of The Bachelorette. Ryan Sutter absolutely runs through the competition. From the very first bit, like, he is the first person in the intros to ever say, you look ravishing, which is an adjective that is 
beaten to death at this point in the Bachelorette franchise. But he pulls that out in the intro, absolutely knocks her off her feet with it. Fun fact about him, he was on injured reserve during a game between the Carolina Panthers and the Miami Dolphins that year that he got hurt. But he gets a date at SeaWorld with Trista Rain during this season, and he gets to play with Dolphins. Sounds fun. He's, I'm, I'm just going to rattle off all the cliches. He's there for the right reasons. He's vulnerable. He's making a connection. They take that connection to the hometown episodes where he puts her through what he describes as the fire pole test. Of course, he's a fireman and he decides you have to be able to slide down the fire pole if there's going to be any chance to continue. She passes the fire pole test, as he says, with flying colors. Uh, it all sets up for the season one finale, which is viewed by 20.39 million people after an average viewership during this season of 16.8. To this day, season one of The Bachelorette has the highest per episode viewership of any season in the entire franchise. And in this finale, she chooses Ryan Sutter. He gets down on the one knee. He proposes. And they actually get married. They have a wedding special in 2003, later that year. It's a couple episodes that run from late November to December. And they are still together, and this is very, very rare, as we said earlier. So, okay, at this point, there have been 44 total completed seasons of either The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. In those 44, from The Bachelorette, there are four that are still married to the winner of this season. There's one that ended in divorce after being married. There's one, the most recent one, still in ongoing engagement, so we'll give them benefit of the doubt. From The Bachelor, there's one person who is married to the winner of their season. There are two who married the runner-up of their season, and there are two who are currently engaged. Both of those have called off the engagement at least once before resuming it. So, let's, let's be generous. Let's say all of those are more or less successful seasons of The Bachelor or Bachelorette. That is 11 out of 44. 25% success rate. That's abysmal. That's absolutely terrible. And that is why I believe that it's so important that in the third ever entry in this franchise, they knocked it out of the park with one. I posit to you that the importance of Ryan Sutter and Trista Rain Sutter is you can't keep milking this franchise if you don't have one happy relationship to point to. In fact, by the time there was another successful marriage, they had already had two different children. Do you want to hear how white their children's names are? Ooh, ooh. I'm, um, I'm gonna say, give me, give me, give me, Lakin. Kaylee, Kaylee, that is like a K A Y L E I G H. You guys, honestly, together, you've kind of come together with the first name for the daughter. The daughter is Blakesley Grace. That's Blakesley. <laughs> and then the son's name is Maxwell Alton. And again, hey, they seem like an absolutely lovely family. And that is so critical. That is so important. By the time that they have raised a family, and had those kids, still, no one else had been successful to that point. Like, almost all of those successful marriages are in the last five or six years. And a number of them, from The Bachelor, are with the runner-up from the show. This is incredibly important for that reason, to have been able to fuel this juggernaut, basically, with your love, if you want to get corny about it. Also, though, this is a very early example of the phenomenon of people continuing to be famous on TV for being on TV. Kind of the the tautological celebrity. Do you guys understand what I say if I say tautology? It's basically saying something is something because it is something. The first rule of tautology club is the first rule of tautology club. 
And so what Ryan Sutter, why are you on TV? Oh, cause I was on TV. No, but why are you on TV now? Oh, cause before I was on TV, he has been on American Ninja Warrior. He has been on Fear Factor. He has been on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's been on several Bachelor spinoffs. He, from 2004 to 2005, had a very brief-lived documentary series called Firehouse TV that he hosted that took an inside look of, like, fire department lives. Trista, no slouch either. She's competed in Dancing with the Stars since then. She was eliminated in the first round. But again, they are the celebrities who have just been made celebrities by being on television. Fort Collins, his hometown at this point, has generated three different Bachelor or Bachelorette contestants, including him. Fort Collins has become a mill that has churned out a minimum of like 15 reality TV show contestants from this town of about 169,000. Nice. Is that a uh, town? Very nice. Can, can you be a town with that many people? Like, so, Okay, city, city, small city. And in fact, small city kind of brings me to the last little bit about Ryan Sutter. So, you know, that's, I think, kind of his case for why he's important. But I do want to make sure that we catch up on how he's doing now. Clearly still a relatively young guy. Despite that, he had some health problems, as many people have had in the last couple of years. Early on in COVID, he decided he wanted to move to Denver and move to the Denver Fire Department. This is kind of a new challenge in the fire department world. You might want to say that he had more shit to prove. The thing is, he is going to have to take some examinations and get certified in order to be a fire person with this larger metropolitan area. During that time, he starts experiencing overwhelming amounts of fatigue and they start referring to this as mystery illness that is not related to COVID-19 until he then also contracts COVID-19. It's actually during that stay that they are able to finally figure out what's up with him. Because of all of his years of firefighting and mold inhalation and other like toxins and chemicals that he didn't just breathe in by being a fire person who we can, I think, agree, pretty much the most noble, like, civil servant in terms of the people with sirens. Yeah, if, if that's a class, I think the people with sirens, you know, the best ones, firefighters. I, I that's just an objectively EMS. good thing. Yeah, okay, EMTs, also good. All those people with those exclusively red and white lights, <laughs> they're cool. But this has basically made him prone to infections, and that's why he had also contracted Lyme's disease. It wasn't cancer as they feared, it was Lyme's disease, which he will have for the rest of his life, but he's able to treat it. So after that, and a couple surgeries, one to his knee and one to his ankle, I'm happy to report that in January of this year, he was able to start working with the Denver Fire Department as all of the family was happy to report on their Instagram. And they're they're just a happy family living outside Denver, Colorado now, but one of the most influential families in the last 20 years of American television culture. And it wouldn't have happened if maybe he'd been able to turn that one NFL opportunity into something. You know, it all had to come together initially with that dream falling apart. He had to turn somewhere else and he turned into an American heartthrob. What tangled webs we weave. I love it. Lyme disease, when you said that, I just want to say shout out Elena Deladon, probably the most prominent athlete in professional sports yeah. living with Lyme disease. Incredible. If, if he doesn't separate the shoulder, perhaps more bachelor contestants would have been separated. That's my pitch Ryan Sutter. I'm sure you guys did not see a, a lecture about the bachelor and bachelorette coming. But if the topic is short careers, one play is about as short as it gets. When you said the shortest career ever, I thought we were going to get a Moonlight Graham deep dive. That's what I was hoping for. You know, that seemed too obvious. Why revisit Field of Dreams? And we can revisit the dream suite. 
Beautiful. Is that what they call? They call it the fantasy suite. Again, I don't fantasy know. Suite. I don't. No, it's the fantasy I do, suite. I will cop to reading recaps. I do not watch the show. I did watch the highlights of their first season to make sure that I got some of those good juicy things. The relish that he has in in saying "you look ravishing" knows that he's knocked it out of the park with that one. You you look <laughs> at that. That's a self satisfied smile. You nailed it with some of the terminology. You know, hometowns. That's exactly what it is. Overnight is another word they use for when they go to the fantasy suite. Ryan Sutter, very notable for that post-playing career. So what you yep. so so he was listed as a firefighter on his episode as well. He, yeah, right? he he did not as Jeff Popovich did. He did not try to say professional football and like put some quotation marks around. He's like, no, I'm a firefighter, like the other two firefighters here. Listen, Jesse Palmer's not walking through that door. <laughs> <laughs> But even though how many former college standouts or college depth guys get on there and and refer to themselves as college football players, it's amazing to go back and look at this first season and see how like, oh, this is everything I've heard about this show ever since then. A foundational member. Anyway, that's that's my foundational member of definitely the Bachelor and Bachelorette Hall of Fame. But I'd love to hear about some other potential inductees to a more prestigious hall. Yeah, so... um... Real quick, I've researched a lot of different people on this, and I do want to give a quick shout-out to Monica Seles, who had an incredible start to her career, seven major wins before she turned 20, and then she literally got stabbed in the back on the court by a crazed fan, which kept her out of competition for two years, and really, even though she was able to come back from getting literally stabbed in the back with a massive knife on the court, she did win one more a couple years later. The rest of her career was never the same, which you might expect after being stabbed in the back in the court by a crazed fan. Yeah, I haven't heard of a lot of people who like have successful comebacks from from getting stabbed in the back. I've heard about people who come back from like tearing their Achilles. Not a lot of them, but more than zero. Yeah, and you know, winning a major after getting stabbed in the back is a pretty great accomplishment. But I'm actually going to talk here about soccer. And because sports are cyclical, we're going to jump around a little bit here. May 26th, 1999, Manchester United completed a famous comeback victory with two stoppage time goals to beat Bayern Munich 2-1 in the Champions League final. This caps off a historic treble where they won the league, the FA Cup, and the Champions League. This team is considered one of the greatest of all time, and this caps off a fantastic decade where they had won 12 major domestic and European trophies, and would lead to the knighting of their manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, later that year. In the starting lineup were four homegrown players, Gary Neville, Ryan Giggs, David Beckham, and Nicky Butt. These four, along with Gary's brother Phil, who was on the bench, and Paul Scholes, who was a normal starter but had missed out in the final due to suspension, were the backbone of the team, and they had been referred to as Fergie's fledglings, and later as the class of 92 referring to the year four of them won the FA Youth Cup for Manchester United. So this was a whole youth movement that had really paid dividends for them in the 90s. Prior to their emergence, Manchester United hadn't won the Premier League in 26 seasons, and they hadn't had any real sustained success since the 50s. So all these legendary players came up together. There was one other one who was supposedly the best of all of them. Uh, His name was Adrian Doherty, and... He had become only the second player in Manchester United history to sign a professional contract as a 16-year-old. Unfortunately for Adrian, in February of 1991, one week before Ferguson had planned to give him his debut, he suffers a cruciate injury 
that ends his career before it even began. And because sports are cyclical, back during the last period of Manchester United's success, the first player in Manchester United history to sign a professional contract at 16 also saw his career end before it could really begin. And so this story is about that player, Duncan Edwards. Duncan. That's a good soccer name. Yes, it's a very good name. I also like that we have found a lot of things to talk about recently that have very specifically happened two times. Yes, I mean, there, there are a lot of parallels between Manchester United of the 50s and Manchester United of the 90s, so it just tied in pretty well, but I'll get more into that. So, Duncan Edwards, born on October 1st, 1936 in Dudley, England. Dudley is a market town in the West Midlands that's nestled right between Wolverhampton and Birmingham. For Americans, it's kind of hard to think about just how close some of these English cities are to each other because everything is so spread out here. But no, these two very large cities are 10 minutes away from each other, and Dudley just happens to be a small town, a a larger town now, that's just right in the middle. Everything's very close. But so Duncan grows up playing soccer and also performing Morris dancing, which is a traditional English folk dance, a choreographed dance by multiple people in usually white attire with bells attached to their shins while wielding swords, sticks, or handkerchiefs in the air, like spinning them around. I've seen videos of it. It's really wild. I'm from a very British family who are still to this day super Anglophile to the point that I am not always comfortable with. I have never heard of this before. This is fascinating. So Duncan was really good at both of these things, and he was selected to compete in the National Morris and Sword Dancing Festival but was also offered a trial with the English Schools Football Association under-14 team, which happened to be on the exact same day. So Duncan had to choose, do I want to do Morris and Sword Dancing or soccer? Disney Channel original movie bullshit. (laughs) Well, Duncan chooses soccer. Uh, He impresses at this trial and is chosen to play for the English Schools 11 and makes his debut against the equivalent Welsh team at Wembley Stadium on April 1st, 1950, at the age of 13. His time with the English school's XI goes well. He starts attracting attention from professional clubs, and his hometown teams of Wolverhampton and Aston Villa, which is a Birmingham team, uh, try to sign him. The manager of the England school's team, John Mercer, who was also the captain of Arsenal at the same time as he was coaching his team in who would win the FA Cup with Arsenal at Wembley just four weeks after Edwards debuted, urged the manager of Manchester United, Matt Busby, who would also later be knighted for his contributions as Man United manager. So we have two Man U managers that get knighted here to sign Edwards. I don't know why John Mercer didn't tell his own team to sign Edwards, but he told Matt Busby of Manchester United to sign him. Well, and also, so a a general manager could in theory be in charge of people that were completely unsigned in a world where there is not a draft? Because that seems like a a wild conflict of interest. So academies weren't super a thing at this point. After World War II, there was a lot of managers who thought, wait a second, what if we try to sign kids early because then we could teach them to play the way that we want them to? And Matt Busby was one of the first guys to do this, but there still really aren't full professional academies for the most part. It's more people playing for their schools and then getting scattered that way. But that was the kind of the lead into, wait a second, we can just sign kids young and teach them to play instead of having to just go to other teams and buy players that we want. 
So Busby takes John Mercer up on this and signs Edwards to an amateur deal on June 2nd, 1952, when Edwards was 15 years old. His talent was evident immediately, and Man U wanted to sign him to a full professional contract as soon as they could. There's some controversy on when he signed this contract. Some reports say that he was signed at midnight on October 1st, 1953, when he turned 17. Others say that Busby himself went to his house on October 1st, 1952, and had him signed the second he turned 16. Regardless, they wanted to give him a deal. So the manager of Wolves, Stan Cullis, was pretty pissed at losing a, uh, a local lad of such talent and accused Manu of improperly paying him and his family to sign there, but nothing came of his complaints at this point. Wolves were also really good at this point. They would go on to win all three of their titles in the 50s. They were pretty much just as good as Manchester United at this point, unlike the current day where Manchester United are one of the greatest teams of all time and Wolves haven't won a title in 70 years. Fun fact, uh, Edwards also began an apprenticeship as a carpenter at the same time he signed with Man U, just in case soccer didn't work out, because there was not a whole lot of money uh, in this at the time. I I looked it up, and his salary was about 15 pounds a week at its height. No millionaires from soccer at that point. Edwards begins his career in Man United's youth squad and makes several appearances for the team that won the first ever FA Youth Cup. Another parallel to the class of 92 who won the 92 Youth Cup. Edwards doesn't get a chance to celebrate this triumph, though, because right before the final, he's called up to the first team and makes his debut. So he makes his debut April 4th, 1953, in a match against Cardiff City. At age 16 years and 185 days, he was the youngest ever player to play in the English top flight at the time. Edwards, along with players like Eddie Coleman, Liam Whelan, David Pegg, and Sir Bobby Charlton, were part of a youth movement that Busby had focused on to refresh his old team, these players began to be known as the Busby Babes. So we have the Fergie Fledgling slash Class of 92, and we have the Busby Babes. Like I said, the big period of success in the 90s, off the back of one youth movement, the previous big period of success in the 50s, also off the back of a big youth movement. In the 53-54 season, Edwards appears in 24 league matches and was also still an active member of the youth team that wins the FA Youth Cup for the second straight season. His form earns him a call-up to the England Under-23 team, and he makes his first appearance uh, for them on January 20th, 1954, against Italy. He was only 17 at the time, so he was like the youngest player on the team. Next year is the year he becomes a true starter for United. He makes 36 first-team appearances, and he scores six goals from left midfield, and he earns a call-up to the full senior England side. He makes his debut in the British Home Championship against Scotland on April 2nd, 1955, at just 18 years and 183 days old, a record that would stand for 43 years until Michael Owen broke it in 1998. At this point, 18 years old, starter for United, full England international, and three weeks later, United took advantage of the fact that he was still youth team eligible and put him in the starting lineup of the FA Youth Cup final as they were going for their third in a row. People got really mad that in a youth tournament final, United put a full England international in there, and Busby had to write a newspaper article defending his choice. No, if you have to write a newspaper article defending your choice, you've you've lost the argument. It did pay off, though, because they did win their third in a row. Of course they did! He was a (laughs) starter in the top flight! (laughs) A few weeks later, Edwards gets selected for the England squad again, 
and starts all three matches of a European tour against France, Portugal, and Spain. And once he gets back to England, they say, hey, it's time for you to start your mandatory two-year stint with the British Army because they still had compulsory army service after World War II. And he gets stationed with Bobby Charlton, who was one year his junior, and he gets special dispensation to go leave the base to go play for Man United when it was game time and then come back and serve in the army whenever they weren't playing a game. So despite splitting time between Man United and the army and missing two months with the flu, Edwards plays in 33 games in 55-56 as United won the first division title. The following season, still splitting time between United and the army, he made 34 appearances and they win their second straight title. And to put that into context, over the previous 60 years, they had won a total of three championships, and now they've won two back-to-back, with their best player in the Army for half the time. Well, okay, where is he stationed in the Army? There's the, I, before I'm, like, fully impressed by this, how much service are we talking here? He was still in England, but he was far away from Manchester United, so, like, it was significant traveling. Okay, yeah. Like, he, like, could, not- he couldn't train with the team. I'm not going to talk smack on that, but it's not like it, what we're in the 50s. It's not like he was going to Southeast Asia. No, no. He was uh, he was in the Ordnance Corps, which was like supply stuff, but they still had to serve and do actual army stuff. It's just he didn't have to leave the island and go fight. But he okay. still had to do his army service and still could not live on his own or train with his team because he had to live on the army base. Edwards, in this 55-56 season, uh, or 56-57 season, I should say, also made seven appearances in United's first ever appearance in the European Cup. This was the second season of the European Cup existing, and United was the first English team to ever participate because none were invited to the first year. European Cup, it's today's Champions League. We just didn't today. invite them. So Fuck those guys. This was their first... If you want to just call it the Champions League, it's fine. This was the this was the first year of the Champions League. Their very first game in the in this, you know, I'm just going to call it the Champions League because that's how it is today. They actually had to play at Manchester City's main road ground because Old Trafford didn't have floodlights at the time. In this game, they win ten nothing against Belgian champions uh, Anderlecht, which is still their highest margin of victory in a competitive match ever. <laughs> Is that why they didn't invite them the first time? <laughs> well, make our own tournament. I mean, Real Madrid wins the first five Champions Leagues, I'm pretty sure, okay. as part of their, like, 12 that they have. And the thing is, England was not really the center of soccer at the point. The, we, mid, the early to mid-50s. moved on to It's Coming Home, which they've been on for, like, several decades because it keeps not coming home. Well, England's it's only... Their own their only World Cup was '66 on home soil, but this was right after they had gotten demolished by the Hungarians twice in a year, six three and seven to one. And after in the 1950 World Cup, they didn't make it out of the group stages after losing to the U.S. one nothing in a game that was so crazy. English reporters thought it was a misprint in the score and reported it as ten nothing England uh, in so the home papers in a game they lost one nothing. Like this, this was kind of the ascent of British soccer, like, wow, okay, after a bad 40-plus years for United and after, you know, a bad time for England soccer, things are really looking up. We have all these young kids coming in. We're showing it on European stage, on the world stage, and things are looking great. 
He's a full-on regular for the national team. He appears in all of the qualifying matches for the 1958 World Cup, including scoring two goals in a 5-2 win over Denmark on December 5, 1956. Despite only being 20, he was already being considered uh, one of the main candidates to be the next England captain. They begin the 57-58 season in good form as United are looking to win their third straight league title. Things are looking good. They're only a couple points behind Wolverhampton. And on February 1st, 1958, Edwards scores in a 5-4 win over Arsenal at Highbury Stadium. After this game, they jet off to Serbia, where they draw against Red Star Belgrade in the quarterfinals on February 6th, which was good enough for them to advance 5-4 to the European Cup semis, where they were going to face AC Milan. Unfortunately, this is the last game that where are Edwards... We on the where are we on the tracker, James? How many unfortunate? <laughs> I, I haven't been keeping track, but I've been waiting for the big one. Yeah, so this is, the, this is the last game that Edwards will ever play. Yeah, there it is. On the way back from Belgrade, the plane carrying the Manchester United team stops in Munich for refueling. On takeoff, the plane crashes, and half of the people on the plane die instantly. This is known as the Munich air disaster, where England lost some of their best and brightest young stars at too early of an age. And Edwards survives initially and is taken to uh, the hospital in Munich with multiple leg fractures, fractured ribs, and severely damaged kidneys. They thought that they could save him, unlike you know a lot of his teammates. They had an artificial kidney, rushed for him. They say that while in the hospital bed, he asked the assistant manager, what time is the kickoff against Wolves? I mustn't miss that match. Unfortunately, things start looking worse and worse. And 15 days after the... Unfortunately, after he's already in the emergency room. Like, he's in the emergency room. He's there. After 15 days, he does pass away. And hours before his death, the new issue of Football Monthly was published in the United Kingdom with a photograph of him smiling on the cover. Hours before they would get the news that he had passed. He was buried at Dudley Cemetery five days later. More than 5,000 people lined the streets for his funeral. And ever since that day and what happened at the Munich air disaster, there has been a lot of what-ifs for Duncan Edwards. His teammate, who we've talked about, Sir Bobby Charlton, is one of the few people who survives that crash without any major injuries. Charlton plays for Manchester United for 20 years, making 600 appearances, scoring 200 goals, and is generally considered one of the greatest of all time. Charlton has said frequently that Edwards was better than him. Edwards was a better player. He was the best player I've ever seen and the best footballer I've ever played with. I always felt I can compare well with any player, except Duncan. He was such a talent, I always felt inferior to him. This, again, is from one of the greatest players of all time. It's one of those things where... Even though he only played five seasons, his impact on Manchester United was so great that he really was one of the people that kind of rocketed them to international success. And even though the team was decimated by this 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 tragedy, they became really a um, a star attraction for young British soccer players and were able to rebuild and become what they are today. And a lot of that is thanks to Duncan Edwards, even if unfortunately he wasn't able to live to see that blossom. That's a beautiful story, and I'm going to try and 
delicately lighten the situation. Which magazine thing is funnier? The Duncan Edwards on this issue right before he passes, or the Betty White 100th birthday celebration right before she dies at the age of 99? I'd say the Betty, because to me, like, that seems like it was Betty's last bit. Like, I think she gave those interviews, and it was like the Magic Johnson gif where she was like... I'm not going to be here. Like, I, think that, I think that was how she was looking at, at as she was doing those interviews. So I, because of the in, perceived intent, at least on my part. I, there's just another couple things that I wanted to add about Duncan Edwards, you know, some posthumous stuff. In 1996, he was one of five players who was chosen to appear on British stamps as part of a football legends set to commemorate uh, Euro 1996. Harry Venables, legendary English manager, stated that there's no doubt that if he had lived, it would have been him, not Bobby Moore, who lifted the World Cup trophy as England captain in 1966. Scottish coach Tommy Doherty, who coached Manchester United in the 70s, stated, there's no doubt in my mind that Duncan would have become the greatest player ever, not just in British football with United and England, but the best in the world. George Best was something special, as was Pele and Maradona. In my mind, Duncan was much better in terms of all-round ability and skill. In recognition of everything he did in his short career, Edwards was made an inaugural inductee into the English Football Hall of Fame in 2002. Surprised they didn't establish their own Hall of Fame until 2002. English football is weird in that there's the English Football Hall of Fame, which came in 2002. Then there's the Premier League Hall of Fame, which came out last year but which only cares about the 30 years of Premier League football. So even though there was 110 years of first division football between 73 and 1992, none of that counts. It's weird. It's not as like standardized as American sports hall of fames are for the most part. But either way, the impact he made in just five years was so great that he has been recognized as one of the greatest who if he had the chance to play 10, 15 more years, would be considered up there with Pele or Maradona or Messi or Ronaldo, anything like that. This was a downer, so I want to turn this over to someone who I hope won't give us another downer. Oof, well, tough one, Xavier, because I'm going to talk about Len Bias. No, I'm going to talk <laughs> oh, about God. basketball player. No Len Bias. If you don't know who Len Bias is, I would highly encourage you to watch the 30 for 30 without bias. They do a far better job breaking down the life of Len Bias than I could ever do on this podcast. But one player who did not die tragically young is, in fact, still alive, still healthy. We're going to be talking about a player, one of the greatest high school players in the history of New York State. From Niagara Falls, New York, then goes to Syracuse, where he becomes a legend in his own right for the Orange Men. Eventually is drafted one spot ahead of Steph Curry. And this is a <laughs> Syracuse point guard yes. by the name of Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn. Oh my god, Love it. Johnny Flynn. So to begin the Johnny Flynn story, as I always do, born February 6th, 1989 in Niagara Falls, New York. You may think that Niagara Falls is somewhat of a basketball outpost, and you'd be wrong. Bob Lanier is also from the same area, as is Christian Leitner, a, another player who had great college success before limited, to put it kindly, professional success. Again, Johnny, 
his high school playing career as a sophomore, his high school wins the New York State Championship. His senior year, he is New York's Mr. Basketball, and he's ranked the number four point guard in the entire country in that senior class. He averages 26.7 points, six assists, three and a half steals, and 3.3 boards his senior season. So with these accolades, he can probably go just about anywhere in the country that he wants to play basketball. But he decides to stay home, relatively speaking, and he goes to Syracuse. With Syracuse, he does not waste any time in immediately making a statement. In his first game, he scores 28 points. This sets the freshman debut record for most points for a freshman in his first game, breaking the record that was set by Carmelo Anthony. So right away, setting the stakes high and making a statement as to the type of player that he can be and the type of team that he can lead. The team that he leads his freshman year is not quite as good as that Carmelo Anthony team that Carmelo did lead to a national championship over James's sort of Maryland Terrapins. Do you claim the Terrapins <laughs> as your, as your I cheer children? for the Terps in the turn. I cheer for them. Fair. Then over James's one month out of the year Terrapins, they won that 2002 title that the Carmelo Anthony led Syracuse Orange. The 2007-2008 edition Syracuse Orange are not quite as successful. In fact, they don't even make the tournament. But Johnny Flynn gets off to quite the start. He is named the Co-Big East Rookie of the Year, and he is second team All-Big East. And it's important to remember that the Big East now is a good basketball conference. The Big East back then was the basketball conference. The Big East tournament was the perfect appetizer to the NCAA tournament. Some incredible moments in that tournament, one of which Johnny Flynn is a central figure in. But we're going to get through the rest of his sophomore season before we get to that. So after this impressive debut as a freshman, he comes back for his sophomore year. He is named to the All-Big East first team in the preseason. And he doesn't waste much time in showing that this was the correct decision to give him this honor. In a... Not preseason tournament. So in college basketball, obviously, you have these tournaments to start the season. And he's playing in what is now known as the Hall of Fame Classic. In the championship game of the Hall of Fame Classic, Syracuse is playing Kansas. Hughes is down three late in the second half when Johnny Flynn nails a three to force overtime. Syracuse goes on to win in overtime over Kansas 89-81. to And Johnny Flynn is named the tournament MVP. They have a very good season of note on their January 11th game against Rutgers. Johnny Flynn had one of the best college posters you'll ever see. He's just a six-foot guy. He goes up at the rim against a player on Rutgers, whose name I didn't write down when I was taking (laughs) But this guy, whoever he is, made the wrong decision when he tried to block Johnny Flynn because Johnny goes up over him, knocks him literally down to the ground silences the home Rutgers crowd. And this was looking like it could have been a Rutgers upset bid, but this is the turning point of the game, and Syracuse goes on to win that game. Johnny Um, Flynn shuts that down. Johnny Flynn said, shut the fuck up. They enter the Big East tournament. They're going to be in the tournament no matter what, but the Big East tournament is such a great proving ground for these teams to try to establish themselves, go against great competition ahead of March Madness. The game I'm about to talk about is the game that served as my launching off point. This is my introduction to Johnny Flynn. And this is a game that I didn't start watching until the first overtime. But that was fine because I still got to watch 30 minutes of basketball. Because in the 
2009 Big East quarterfinals between Syracuse and UConn. This game goes to six overtimes between sex Hughes. sex tuple sex tuple overtime sex tuple yes sex tuple would be seven sex tuple is six this was one of the most incredible games that i ever watched because there was at least one buzzer beater that forced an additional overtime at one point it was thought that eric dievendorf hit the game-winning shot i think this was the fourth overtime but upon further review it was after the whistle and for these first five overtimes at no point did syracuse hold a lead Syracuse trailed for the entirety of the first five overtimes, with the exception of the fact that when the clock hit zero in that overtime period, the score was again tied. When it comes to the sixth overtime, Syracuse finally scores first, and they actually go on to win that sixth overtime very decisively. So in the five-minute period, they outscore UConn by 10, and they win in six overtimes, 127 to 117. I can't imagine how mad I would be as a UConn fan if we had the lead in five different overtime periods and did not win the game. And trailed at no point. It wasn't like, oh, they went up two and then Syracuse had a three and UConn brought it back. Took the lead every time and gave up the lead every single time. I could never feel bad for UConn fans. They are some of the worst fans on the internet. I like UConn teams. I saw one of them win... A national championship in person. But UConn fans are, are pretty toxic. Listen, U- UConn ended up being fine. UConn had great successes since then. But who had even greater success than UConn in that game was Syracuse, and who led the way for Syracuse was Johnny Flynn. In these 70 possible minutes of this game, he played 67 of them, including the entirety of each of the six overtimes. Scores 34 points with 11 assists. And the most impressive thing to me, of 16 trips to the foul line, Johnny goes 16 of 16. No, he does not. Does not miss a single free throw in the most physically taxing game you can possibly imagine. No Nick Anderson moments here. The anti-Nick Anderson. Johnny Flynn is ice cold. So, of course, they, they didn't end up finishing this game until after midnight. I think, I think it was about 1.20 in the morning when this game finally ended because, thankfully for the rest of the teams in the tournament, it was the last game of the day because the way these conference tournaments work, you play all the games consecutively back to back to back to back. This was a 2 p.m. game. It's not getting done till 7. There would have been a game that tipped off at, like, midnight. They luck out that this was the last game of the day. They go to bed, and they wake up. And they have to play another game the same day. In the semifinals against Western Virginia, Johnny Flynn plays every single minute in this game. He plays 45 minutes. Now you might be saying, but there's only two 20-minute halves. Ah, but this game also went to overtime with West Virginia. So the very next day, they go to overtime. They only need one this time. They pull out the win. Johnny's got 15 points and nine assists. They go on to the conference championship against Louisville. They do lose. But Johnny Flynn is nonetheless named the tournament MVP for his incredible efforts in guiding Syracuse to these overtime victories. He was only the fourth player all time to be named tournament MVP for a team that did not win the Big East tournament. The stage is set and he enters into the NCAA tournament. Syracuse has a fine run, nothing particularly noteworthy. They beat Stephen F. Austin in the first round. Johnny puts up 16 and 7. In the second round against Arizona State, they also win. He puts up 11-7. and seven. They advance to the Sweet 16, but they go no further. And so ends Johnny Flynn's sophomore year. 
at this point. He is an undersized guard, but has already proven himself plenty capable on the college stage. And what often good coaches will do is they'll encourage their players who do have the ability to go pro to go pro as early as possible. So after consulting with Jim Beheim, Johnny Flynn does decide to go pro. Originally does not sign an agent. Does eventually signed with Leon Rose, who notably was the agent of Allen Iverson and the first agent for LeBron James. And president of the New York Knicks now. Mm-hmm. And president of the New York Knicks, of course. The thing that uh, we all know him best for. <laughs> but anyway, Johnny declares for the draft, and the 09 draft ends up being a pretty good one. Uh, first overall this year was Blake Griffin. Number two went Hashim Thabit. Number three was James Harden. I don't have down who was the fourth pick, but I do have down. Tyreek. Tyreek Evans? Yeah. Tyreek Evans, who actually won Rookie of the Year from that class. Yeah, I hate this yeah. draft class, and I will always will, so I'll always remember, like, the first 10 picks. Well, the reason well, why Xavier remembers... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> ...is there's quite a few great point guard prospects that are in this class. You had Johnny Flynn. You had Ricky Rubio. You had Brandon Jennings. You had Drew Holiday. Later on in this draft, some, some point guards went... A weird name that starts with like a W or something, right? There, there, there is, there is a Wardell, a Wardell Stephen Curry is one of the point guards. Also, Patty Mills was was in this draft class as well, as was Danny Green and Damari Carroll, and Jordan um, Hill. Everyone loves Jordan Hill <laughs> and Jordan Hill. Incredibly, all of the players that we've just named, with the exception of Ricky Rubio, were drafted after Johnny Flynn. So the Timberwolves have these back to back picks at five and six. They are candidates to get a point guard. And at five, they go for who is, in their minds, the best point guard available, which is Ricky Rubio. So now Xavier, as a Knicks fan, is thinking, okay, the Wolves took one. At least they're not going to take two. And maybe Steph Curry is going to make it to us. But what did the Timberwolves do? Ricky Rubio is, of course, the Spanish sensation. He's going to stay in Europe for a bit. So they need a point guard for right now. And with that sixth pick, they take Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn goes six. Steph Curry goes seven to the Warriors. Xavier gets a nice Jordan Hill for his. And then the next two picks were DeMar DeRozan and uh, and Brandon Jennings. But you know, I blame Juan Carlos Navarro. If Ricky Rubio and Juan Carlos Navarro weren't running shit at Barcelona, maybe he comes over initially and then there's no Johnny Flynn. And then the Warriors take Johnny Flynn and then there's a world where the Knicks have multiple championships and I'm a much happier person. I think the more likely outcome is you just would have ended up with Johnny Flynn by the sound of it. Well, the thing the thing about it was that Steph Curry refused to work out for the Warriors because he only wanted to go to the Knicks. And so if the Warriors had another option, they might have just taken Flynn. But with both the two higher rated point guards all going off the list, they probably said, no, fuck it. We'll draft him in Calls Bluff, see if he's actually going to hold out or if he'll come play for us. Well, Xavier, I am sorry that the greatest shooter of all time did not come to play for your team. Your, it your is concern an all-time, is appreciated. It is an all-time what-if, because even at the time, like, it was like, okay, they took Rubio, okay, now maybe they take DeRozan, Jordan Hill would be a big man that they could take to pair with them, and they said, no, we're doubling down on the point guards. In fact, they actually took four point guards in that entire draft. It was, it was like... It was like the Jalil Okafor Sixers draft where they took like five centers despite already having Embiid. Where is really Wayne just... Ellington in that draft? Man, I Wayne wonder Ellington. why the Minnesota Timberwolves like never make the playoffs. Hey, well, yeah, as, the, uh, as, as, as we speak, they're winning in game three against the Grizzlies. So The Flynn pick know. was Good what they that? got back in the Kevin Garnett trade, I believe. So. Yes. Oh man, way to squander that. 
You know, hey, why why are we saying squander? He had this great college career, and <laughs> you know now we're gonna get into his rookie year. And rookie year, just as it does with Syracuse, starts off with quite the bang. They are playing the New Jersey Nets at the time in the opening game of the season. Johnny starts off pretty cold through three quarters. He only has five points. But as he learns with his craft being hardened in the heat of overtime in Syracuse, when it's winning time, that's when Johnny Flynn shows up. Scores 13 points in the fourth quarter, including 11 in the final seven minutes to lead the Wolves back from a 16-point deficit with seven minutes left to beat the Nets 95-93 to in his NBA debut. MCW-esque, some may say. Some would say that, in fact, Johnny was the original MCW. Syracuse point guard coming in and setting the tone early. True, and, and I'm sure he's on path to a Rookie of the Year award, much like our friend Michael Carter-Williams. Well, so right after this game, you know, Johnny says, can't be scared of anything, is a direct quote. He can't be scared of anything, said Flynn, who is generously listed at six foot. Especially a little guy like me. All we have is a big heart. That is all you Aww. have. And all that's, and, that's some real coach's kid stuff right there. He has a big heart, and what else he has is a lightning quick first step. He's able to get to the rim on just about anybody. Just a fun footnote about that Nets team. Their leading scorer that year was Brooke Lopez. He averaged 18.8 a game. And this Nets team started the season 0-18, which set the NBA record, which would later be tied by the Philadelphia 76ers. The Nets end up going 12-70 and this year. So the omen that you thought that that first Johnny Flynn game, it was really more just an effect of how bad the Nets were. Isn't Brooke Lopez still the all-time leading scorer in Brooklyn Nets history? I believe so. I am pretty certain that he is because Vince Carter wasn't there long enough. That was before Jason Kidd anyway. wasn't there long enough and didn't Jason score Kidd. enough. Yeah, I mean, and, and there, those people are before Brooke Lopez. Obviously, uh, AD ain't Garnett, done it yet. Garn- Garnett and Paul Pierce. I mean, Katie, like, who knows how long Katie even stays there? Like, Katie stays, it's like, true. three more seasons. That's not going to be long enough, so... Brooke Lopez, still the all-time leading scorer for the New Jersey-slash-Brooklyn Nets franchise. Johnny has a few games that are standout games from this first season. So on December 14th, they beat the Jazz 110-108. to Johnny drops 28, including having the game-winning layup to put them ahead. Just over a month later, on January 18th, he stores his career-high 29 points in a 108-103 overtime win over the Philadelphia 76ers. For his rookie year, averages 13.5 points, 4.4 assists, 2.4 rebounds, and a steal per game, shooting 41.7 from the field, which isn't great, but 35.8 from three, and 82.6 from the free throw line. So, very, very... That's a solid rookie season. Very, very solid rookie season, and he is so recognized for it, being named to the second team, all-rookie team. Johnny played in and started in 81 games that season. They were the first 81 games of that season. But game 82, with nothing to play for, he decided to sit because he had a nagging hip issue. And just thought, you know, there's no point in pushing this for game 82. This hip issue, unfortunately, is where Johnny Flynn's career turns. This hip injury, he ends up getting surgery on it over the summer. And they don't say this at the time because you don't want to show your cards, I guess would be how I say this. But the injury was compared to Bo Jackson's. Um, And if you know anything about Bo Jackson... Bo Jackson's hip popped out. Bo Jackson didn't play football again. Still played baseball after that because he's Bo fucking Jackson. But so Johnny spends some time rehabbing. 
people close to his circle say that they feel that the Timberwolves actually rushed him back. Year two, he appears in 53 games, only makes eight starts as compared to starting each of the 81 games that he played in in his first season. Year three, now Ricky Rubio has arrived, so they have a healthy point guard, and Johnny's still not quite feeling it. Uh, so he's traded to the Rockets in that offseason. He's then later traded to the Portland Trailblazers along with Hashim Thabit. So getting the number two and the number six picks from the draft just two years ago. Seems like it would be quite the haul, but they were really just throwing pieces. He makes one start for Portland, and then he is out of the NBA for good. No more Johnny Flynn in the NBA. So he appears in 163 total games. So 81 his rookie season, 82 games, which are spread out amongst the year two and year three, with the 29 appearances in year three being the last of his NBA career. See, there's something that you you missed there in that the trade to the Blazers was for member of the guy Hall of Fame, Marcus Camby. Marcus Camby, I did, I had that written. He was traded for Marcus Camby. We've had a good night of callbacks. You know, we're, just, we're continuing the theme of the previous episode. We're, we are establishing the guy universe. And, of course, like any good guy, he doesn't let the NBA thing be the end of his basketball playing career. He is still going to bounce around a little bit, trying to find playing time and finding places to play. So he goes to Australia for the next season. 2012-2013, plays with the Melbourne Tigers. Um, he makes the NBL All-Star Game, and he ends up being named second team All-NBL. Tries to use this to now go over to China to play for the Sichuan Blue Whales. After one month, uh, he leaves due to injury. Played zero games for the Blue Whales and does not play in the 2013-14 NBA season. Shouldn't say NBA season. Basketball season. Professional basketball. The next year, he's going to give it one more try. He goes to Italy. Signs with Orlandina Basket. Plays two games. He gets injured again. And at this point... Johnny says it's probably time to hang him up. And so ends the career of Johnny Flynn. And so ends my recounting of his story. Unfortunately, I don't have any notes on whether or not he went to show on any dating shows like your boy James. I mean, everyone gets on Dancing with the Stars at some point. I mean, at least as an audience member, right? Like, let's give him something. But Johnny Flynn, undersized point guard, incredible quick first step. Incredible player at Syracuse, and unfortunately, that hip issue does come up, and it marks the end of his playing career. But I just, Johnny was one of those guys that I just loved watching, specifically with Syracuse. Like, I don't remember much of his NBA career, to be perfectly honest, but he was such a dog at Syracuse. To go 16 of 16 at the free throw line in a six-overtime game, and then play the full 45 the next night in another overtime game. That's, that's got to probably be the shortest period of time ever to do, what, 112 minutes of, of basketball altogether? You could, you could play a full 48 minutes, 48 minutes, NBA back-to-back. And both of those games could go to one overtime period. And you would still be at 106 minutes. So What a dog. He had that dog in him. He did not have that hip stability in him. And that's what led to the end of his career. But love Johnny Flynn. Um, wish he could have had a longer career. But if he had a longer career, then who knows? Maybe he would have just had like a, a standard 10-year average NBA guy career, which wouldn't have been at all noteworthy for this episode. So 
Johnny does have a chance to reclaim some notoriety and some glory with this election that we're about to have. I like Johnny Flynn. I also, when you first started talking, I was so sure you were talking about somebody else who was also the number six overall pick. But three years earlier, I, I was so certain this was going to be a Brandon Roy episode. But I do oh, like Brandon Johnny Roy would have been a great one. Brandon Roy. Well, what I love about Brandon Roy is so in those 2011 playoffs, which ended up the, the, the finals that year was the Mavericks heat when LeBron lost the first year. I don't think it might have been against the Mavericks. Brandon Roy had one signature callback performance in that, like after his knees were already gone, but I think he dropped like 20 in the fourth quarter. Oh, I miss Brandon Roy. I love Brandon, Brandon Roy. He had no legs, though. That, that dude makes my knees look abundant with ligaments. <laughs> well, I like exactly what you kind of said there, Diaz, at the end. Is, as we kind of talk about these three, there's definitely a through line of, of the sliding doors. Like All of them in some capacity are interesting specifically because of what happened because they could not do. It seemed like they were meant to do. Ryan Sutter built his whole life to make an NFL field. Didn't even get to play the full 60 minutes. Flint made it to the NBA. Starts almost every single game his full rookie season and never starts more than, what, 10 the rest of his career? Yeah, I think it was, I think he started nine games his second year and then one in the third year. Yeah, and then with Edwards, I mean, you're talking about a guy that sounds like he would be one of the British Mount Rushmore football players. Yeah. Love stories that focus on what could have been. Here's a pitch I'll make once again for Ryan Sutter. If The Bachelor isn't able to live, then The Bachelor doesn't morph into the weird sports fandom that it has become now, where there are things like BatchDraft.com, which is a 100% real website where you can sign up to be in Bachelor Fantasy Leagues and go through Bachelor Fantasy Drafts of the contestants to try and win. While you cannot gamble on The Bachelor in most states legally, Bovada.com, based in the Caribbean, will absolutely take your money for wagers and stuff. If it doesn't have those legs, he doesn't turn this second competition that he comes into into the, the televised. The Bachelor is as real as WWE is. And you know what? We've brought some WWE in here. If we're talking about someone who's an athlete and then goes on to a lengthy entertainment career... That requires him to be in very good physical condition just so he can be a beefcake. Then I'm, I'm just saying there's parallels. We have some your, precedents. Your first mistake is underestimating just how much I hate reality television. Oof. The answer I is I would love it if The Bachelor ceased to exist and everyone who was on it was Thanos snapped because it has led to wow. so many terrible, terrible television shows that destroy people's brains and also lead to people doing awful, awful things for that type of television celebrity. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not going to defend the franchise. I don't think it's a largely great thing, but it takes someone to get a juggernaut rolling and you can't deny that it is a juggernaut. And you know what? At least this dude seems pretty cool. <laughs> Ryan Sutter and Trisha Rain Sutter and Blakesley Grace and Maxwell Alston, they all seem pretty chill. He has a coffee business now called Bearded Man Coffee that he runs with some other guys. And this is I not like it. Black okay. Rifle Coffee. Now, you, you I did check. <laughs> it is not like some crazy gun nut thing. Just three dudes with big old beards making coffee. 
cup of coffee in the NFL to reality TV for life to coffee owner is like the most generic thing that can happen and that you see, I feel like happens a billion times now. Yeah, but you know what? Someone had to do it first. Listen, Ryan Sutter is a trailblazer. Brandon Roy is a trailblazer. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't know if either's getting into the hall guy tonight, <laughs> I'm ashamed of how long it took me to realize what you were doing with Brandon Roy. <laughs> no, just going for the lowest hanging fruit possible. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so my thing with Ryan Sutter is I think it's a great story. Don't get me wrong. But if we're going back to the genesis of our guy test, which is you bring this guy up in a bar in any town, are they going to know who you're talking about? Ryan Sutter, I don't know who they're going to be talking about. If we go to a pub over in England, everybody's going to know about good old Duncan. And I feel like at least in the upstate New York area, everybody's <laughs> going to know Johnny Flynn if I bring that up. I don't know where I could go and I could bring up Ryan Sutter and everybody's be like, oh, yeah. A bachelorette and bachelor fan club. Yeah, I mean, 20.39 million people watched that finale and an average of 16.8 million watched every episode, which happened in 2003. That is the highest average viewership for a season of The Bachelor or Bachelorette. 44 seasons. That's number one. I wonder what the pub crossover with Bachelor viewership is. Probably not that high. No, it's probably pretty much... I, I could be swayed to Johnny Flynn. Duncan Edwards, I'm sorry, if you were supposedly going to be like the greatest English footballer of all time after that, I I know we've come to this like, how good are you? When we get really good people, it's normally in sports a little bit less prestigious than top flight English football. If this was going to be a guy that was going to presumably be knighted someday by the sound of it, that might be a little much for me. What's your final pitch for Johnny Flynn, Diaz? My final pitch for Johnny Flynn is that if you go into the stat sheets and the history books of the NBA, you might not see Johnny Flynn's name that much. But if you go into a barbershop and you say, hey, remember that Johnny Flynn guy for Syracuse? Any barber in that shop is going to tell you, yo, Johnny Flynn could ball. And Johnny Flynn could hoop. And I'm not saying that this hall doesn't have hoopers in it. But I'm saying that it could use more hoopers. Johnny Flynn was a hooper. Johnny Flynn was a bucket. Johnny Flynn was a problem. Johnny Flynn was a guy. And he got that dog in him. And he does have that dog in him. Thank you. Well, here we know Xavier's not going to vote for Ryan Sutter. Xavier, you're down to, and I'm also down to two. Xavier and I have each eliminated one. I mean, where we're at is both of us haven't eliminated Johnny Flynn, which means the answer is Johnny Flynn. I'm voting it's for either, Flynn. It's either I'm a stalemate or Johnny Flynn. Diaz is voting for Johnny Flynn. Mm, I don't know. I, there's a part of me that almost wants to lock it into stalemate. Make Xavier decide. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's what I think it is. I think, Xavier, you, I, I'm going to vote Ryan Sutter. Xavier, I'll let you decide. Do you go with Johnny Flynn or do we lock into a stalemate and figure out what that means? Because <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's going to happen eventually. But do I want to have that happen now? I don't know. As much as I liked talking about Duncan Edwards and giving more audience to someone who could have been one of the greatest of all time. And as much as it pains me to think about the 2009 draft and the Knicks not having Stephen Curry and crying myself to sleep at night that we didn't even get just like Brandon Jennings or DeMar DeRozan out of it, we got Jordan Hill. I think I just got to go with Johnny Flynn because I did love 
growing up watching Big East basketball as a kid from New York where we didn't really have much D1 sports other than literally the U.S. Army being 30 minutes from my house. So it's got to be Johnny Flynn. I will concede. On the record, I am the author of the dissent here. This is a 2-1 decision, but it is a 2-1 decision. We respect democracy here. Diaz, I believe that leaves you with a, a final task. It is my great honor to welcome in one of the earliest dogs. He was perhaps a young puppy when we first came across him. He will forever have that dog in him. One of the greatest orange men of all time. Johnny Flynn, welcome to the Hall of Guy. We're so glad to have you. And may you teach others the way of the dog and how to bring it out from within yourself. Johnny Flynn, you have, you have received our final rose of the evening. Congratulations. Welcome to the hall. Hey there, editor's note, as requested by Diaz. Here is our final tracker on Unfortunately for this episode by my count. Five total, two from Diaz, three from Xavier. Thank you. I am glad that I tricked you guys into listening to The Bachelor for like ten minutes. Ooh. Listen, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the franchise. The, the concept... Listen, I was I was all over Love is Blind. Love is Blind Season 2 I thought was really good. I can't wait to check out The Ultimatum. That's going to be really good. Temptation Island is in the middle of its fourth season. I love all that trash. Give me all that trash. I Just like Caitlin. Trash can. Ka- Caitlin loves it all, and when it's on the TV or her iPad, I have to just do something else because I cannot stand people acting like the worst people in the world. Like the challenge and stuff like that. They all just feel terrible absolutely terrible garbage people but i understand that millions of people love that it's just not my thing well xavier authors our final opinion after diaz gives you your recommended viewing for the week and i think that'll close it out for us i have been james i've been the very special guest xavier and i'm diaz and as kate scott said last night about joel Embiid, for your mvg consideration most valuable guy <laughs> no, a joke is great when you have to say it afterwards. <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, do you get it? You get the joke about the guy. Thing, this is just a game.